on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here. And Sally Rugg here. Great to be with you again, Francis, and everyone listening. How's your week been? Uh, It's been a delight. How's yours? I've been up in Queensland, which has been great. Been visiting, uh, though I did get to Brisbane on last week and thought, no, you know, escaping Melbourne's dreaded winter. And you and I both have commented, we know cold, but this has been uh, severely cold. Got to Brisbane, think, oh, I don't need a puffer jacket. And I froze on Friday night. And I thought, this is cruel. I've snowbirded it all the way across the Tweed and Brisbane's turned on a night that Hobart would be proud of and I felt I felt gypped, I felt cheated and I had to go out and buy, and our next guest will be proud of me, I had to go out and buy a Queensland Maroons hoodie to keep me warm for the, for the remainder of the weekend because I was cold. Francis, it's literally winter. Like what, were you expecting to fly to Brisbane and it's summer up there or something? Like we still have seasons. I, I think it's unseasonably cold in Queensland at the moment so, yeah, you've, you, it's, it's- it's not normally that cold. If you're wondering who that voice is who's just chimed in before we've even had time to introduce him, you've got three guesses. No, we're joined today by Lec Blaine, um, regular of on the pod, friend of the pod, um, who's here to talk to us about his latest essay on the election campaign that's just been. Lec, how are you going? I'm good. I'm very well. I'm in Sydney. I'm freezing my ass off. But yeah, there's no um, there's no respite. Uh, unfortunately, I can't escape back to Queensland because it's quite cold there as well at the moment. I think. <laughs> Man, you did some miles. How many? Can I just ask you to write this essay, which you cover the election campaign uh, in granular detail? You must have been uh, burning the rubber on the road or uh, clocking up the freaking fire miles. Were you out every day, basically? Just you know, I, I didn't go to um, WA or Melbourne. So, yeah, but I was... Neither did the Prime Minister, the former <laughs> Prime Minister, I think. Uh, so I did some interviews via phone and then um, I went up through regional New South Wales, up into Queensland, and then um, I was up there for a few weeks and then I came back down through regional New South Wales uh, and dropped into Lismore and then got back to Sydney. And, um, yeah, the, it was uh, it was quite interesting because I finished sort of with Reid, I think, was the last sort of electorate check-in and that w- ended up being quite a pivotal one. It was. I loved watching the race in Reed and I think the new member, Sally Situ, is, is going to be a really great new member of parliament. Yeah, she's she's really impressive and um, quite um, well media trained as well. So uh, she's done a few interviews since the election and, um, yeah, she's really hit the ground running. And so this essay that you've written, we just were discussing a moment ago, so it's about 11,000 words, but you say you could have written about 30,000 words, right? So what was it about this election in general tens of thousands of word sense? What what was it about this election that was, you know, full of so many stories to tell? Yeah, well, I'm just a bit of a freak and so I just always bite off more than I can chew and um, do more than what I am going to get paid for. So there was also a sense that there was going to be a really unpredictable election. So I went to places like Biloela as well and then regional Queensland and like Flynn didn't end up flipping to Labor and so I I sort of had to at the end prioritize the results which explained the election results and so that generally focused on the seats that changed hands even though there was some really interesting stuff that I could have gone into there was a anti-vaxxer who I interviewed from um, Port Douglas north of Cairns who he went down to the protest in Canberra in earlier in the year and so that would have been like a he was fascinating but it just didn't end up really 
explaining what happened at the election because the minor party vote for the sort of anti-authoritarian parties didn't really carry through. So it was really tough. I had to, <laughs> I had to cut some really interesting stuff. But um, yeah, I, I had to really try and prioritise the ones where it was the seats that changed hands or the or the people that explained the overall sort of trends that were happening across the country. So it sounds like there were many, many different stories, but ultimately the results on election day kind of pulled out the stories that would, I suppose, win us. You know what I mean? Like It wasn't just that. It was also that, like, I interviewed quite a few Labor MPs who were already in Parliament and not a lot of them made it into the piece just because it ended up quite long, but, like, uh, compared to what the sort of interviews that I had sitting there. And so I thought that the most interesting ones generally were the new MPs and they didn't do a heap of media before the election. And so it seemed like that was going to be a little bit fresher and a little bit more illuminating for people to get an insight into these new MPs and and really the diversity of of the new MPs, like um, not just their ethnic diversity, but like their life diversity. Like they weren't all sort of cut from central casting. They weren't career politicians. There were some really, really interesting backstories and it, it covered uh, the full gamut of the Australian experience. And so, yeah, I really wanted to try and capture the job that Labor did. Like they didn't nail everything. Obviously what happened uh, with Christina Keneally and Adam Fowler uh, was sort of the opposite case where, where you got like a career politician and there was like a backlash from the local electorate. So I think that if you look at, especially in WA, they got such this is like amazingly diverse group of people. And as I said, it's not just that they're from really ethnically diverse backgrounds, it's that they're from like really just interesting, have really interesting life experiences, often from quite working class backgrounds, which is something that we don't see a lot of in Australian politics. And I think that the the, the thing about the, the um, ethnic diversity angle is that it's not just reflecting Australia's diversity in 2022, although I think that that's very important and that's like an amazing thing that Labor's attempted to do at the election, but that when you have candidates like that, it's a, probably the quickest way to signal to the electorate that they're not a career politician because generally career politicians in Australia have been white men. So when you get someone from a div- more diverse background than that, you quickly signify to to people, oh, we've got someone different here. And, and, um, and yeah, I, I know that there was other issues uh, in WA, but given that it's generally considered the second most conservative uh, state on a federal level. Like I, I thought it was really amazing, the candidates that they got over there. We spoke to you about 18 to 12 months ago around Scott Morrison. You did a fantastic essay also in the monthly about Scott Morrison's carefully manicured image as the everyman, uh, the guy that liked to make a, a really rubbish curry, go to church and pretended to like rugby league. And he skated to an election victory in 2019 off the back of that. But it's very early on in your essay in this edition of the monthly where you talk about how that had run out of runway and that people had already seen right through that. Was that apparent to you very early on as you were at the coalface of the campaign day-to-day watching people interact with politicians and the conversations they were having? Yeah, it was sort of starting to become apparent last year when the quarterly essay came out because people had just been paying so much more attention to politics than what they usually do. Like, yeah, we've talked before about how disengaged the average person can be from politics, but because of coronavirus, people were paying way more attention to their leaders and, and Scott Morrison was there every day. And so people started to see the gap between uh, his rhetoric and the reality of you know them not being able to get rats or restrictions because of different stuff ups. And uh, so I think that 
the more attention that people paid to him. It, it's not just that they saw through the mask, but it's just that they saw how, I, I guess, they gained an appreciation for how trivial those things were in comparison to the actual like service delivery that a, a government is there to do. And I, I think that people regained an appreciation for the important role that government plays in their lives. And so when you got to the election and, and Morrison was sort of saying, well, we're going to get out of your lives and it didn't really match up with, you know, I, I think that people do want more freedom, but they also want government to be, you know, competent. And that's something that certainly his government wasn't. And when you deeply appreciate that this leader isn't competent, then whether he goes for like a rugby league team or whether he cooks a curry on the weekend or whether he builds a chook house doesn't seem that important anymore. It doesn't, like the relatability doesn't really matter. You sort of just want someone who who can do the job. Yeah, I think that is exactly right. In terms of someone someone who can do the job, someone who isn't, they're not necessarily going to be um, having a beer down at the pub and, in your words, cavorting around with staffers, but a more sort of safe pair of hands, no-nonsense type. In your essay, you write beautifully, I think, about gender. And I, I think that what you've written about gender in this essay, which I'll, I'll let you talk about, was such a nice companion to what you wrote in your last essay to- about top blokes and Australian masculinity in the larrikin spirit, which we did talk to you about on the pod. Can you tell me about what people like Helen Haynes and and other people you spoke to for the essay told you about gender and how how that played out in this election? Well, yeah, the, the, the line about cavorting with staffers was actually Simon Holmes of Court and so he... Um, Oh. I, I did an interview with him and um, and he'd read the quarterly essay and he sort of said he'd been talking to Kathy McGowan's sister for a few years and she'd sort of said, you know, there's this trope in Australian politics, it's a good bloke, but there's not really like a female equivalent. And he said that he'd been saying to her that he could see this alternative emerging, which is the no-nonsense woman, the like the woman who like goes on from what we were just saying, who wants to do the job, who isn't down on the, uh, on the piss of a weeknight with staffers or you know, trying to pick up or whatever, who actually does the research and is at home doing the work. And um, and that was the model, essentially, that these independents pursued and presented to the electorate. And it got exceptional results, which are well documented. But it was, yeah, interesting because Labor pre-selected some really no-nonsense women as well. And and so when I talked to, like, Zanita Mascarenas uh, over in Perth, or um, Michelle Anandaraja down in in Higgins in Melbourne. It was really interesting because they had there were so many aspects of their experience which uh, related very closely to modern Australia, and and they um, were very proud Australians and and quite patriotic. But they also weren't for a minute trying to like con me that they you know both of them said to me I remember oh I completely disinterested in sport. I hope that doesn't like I hope that's not an issue. And yeah, it was sort of just refreshing because. It felt like that they weren't playing by the same games or the same sort of cliches that we uh, sometimes expect our leaders to fulfil. And so I hope that we, um, we've we sort of turned a, a little bit of a corner and it's been interesting even since Albanese became elected. And obviously he's one of the biggest sporting nuts I think that Parliament's had. But how little he banged on about that during the campaign. I, I expected him to constantly mention the Rabbitohs, but he didn't really like it every now and then in in certain contexts, but he wasn't, he took his job seriously. And so when he did his speech on election night uh, and there were people at the, there was a guy swirling a 
rabbitoh scarf around and um there was some rabbitohs people in the crowd and i sort of thought oh he'll he'll probably mention the rabbitohs here like uh in the same way that morrison sort of mentioned the sharks i think after 2019 and he was just so he was just so serious he he, he didn't he wasn't taking the piss he wasn't trying to humanize himself he took the moment really really seriously and and um obviously led with a commitment to um the uluru statement of the heart and um and yet yeah, really seemed to embrace people who don't have his cultural touchstones aren't from sydney aren't from suburban sydney it was a very like nationally focused speech that didn't shut anyone out which is you know something that i think that um morrison did and it ended up hurting him because there's a big reason that he was so unpopular in wa was coronavirus and um, Mark McGowan and all the stuff around that. But I think that another thing that affected that was how little people in WA felt like they could relate to him because so much of his identity was built around Sydney and suburban Sydney. And I think Albanese made a very conscious strategy to almost decontextualise himself so that people in Melbourne or people in Perth wouldn't necessarily time down and think of him just as Sydney. And he's really crystallised that by deciding to live at the lodge rather than Kirribilli. So I, I think that that's a, I think it's a very effective strategy for the election. And I think it's going to be, you know, could be a really effective thing going forward for maintaining a sense that he's a leader of the country rather than being, you know, the prime minister for Sydney. It's fascinating you bring that up, Lek, because when you read the essay, you do get a sense of just how diverse the country is, but just how big the gaps are in terms of uh, access and wealth between different regions of Australia. Just a piece of, of, of the essay, you know, according to the 2016 census, coal mining employs 9% of the, uh, the Hunter electorate. Oh, it's adult population, 84.5% were born in Australia compared to 49.4% in Chisholm and 43.7% in Reed, which is in Western Sydney. Chisholm's in eastern Melbourne, leafy Box Hill, really. University degrees, 10.9% in uh, in the Hunter compared to 46.5% in Higgins. So in terms of trying to be a prime minister or a, a mainstream political party that can meet the aspirations and expectations of people who have such very different life experiences and very different immediate needs, it's almost impossible to do it. But that's the job, is it not? That's what you've got to try mm. to do. Yeah, it's, it's nearly impossible to do. And I think that, as I said, in terms of when we, you know, persona the persona of our leaders it isn't the most important thing i think policies are more important and that has more of an effect on the lived experience of australians but i feel like the archetype that morrison was offering isn't hugely relatable to lots of the country and and it was very gendered and just in lots of different ways is that anecdote about the campaigner who met him in canberra on it like a like for a I think it was to do with gender. And so he, he walked up to this group of young women and he said, uh, who he's a Sharks fan. And it actually really upset them. Like it, it was a it was sort of like a really alienating experience because they were here to do this really serious thing. And the the chances of any of them being Sharks fans was probably going to be quite small. Like it's a suburban Sydney rugby league team. So I, I think that it was I, I don't know whether he was doing it intentionally, but it's almost like this effort to like shut people out. It's almost like taking the piss out of them that they like this People were here to do serious stuff in the parliament and, and you're sort of just like, yeah, you're sort of just shutting them out of politics. And so I think that Labor can do more. Labor can be more reflective of, of Australia's diversity. I think they've said that themselves. So I, I, I think that now that we've seen that there's electoral success to be had from pre-selecting interesting, diverse people, like I, I think they'll continue to do it. And one thing that Albanese certainly did was he never presented himself as a messiah or the, a one-man band and, and he was very good at sort of like um, 
of of bringing the team around him forward and and so yeah i think that that's important because no one leader can reflect australia it's impossible and it's you know i said in the essay the closest that i've come to finding a politician who reflects the contradictions of modern australia is uh zanita mascarenas because she's had such a you know she's rural raised by a kindergarten cleaner and a and a fitter and turner on a mine and she's worked she went to university but she worked on a mine for 10 years but she's also worked in the climate change space now she lives in the inner city so that's probably the closest i've come but still there's a lot of things that people who don't fit into that narrative so the it's really important that rather than pinning it all on one person labor creates like a tapestry of people and you gradually over all these different electorates you start to people start to look at this all these different people uh, all these different faces, all these different voices, and they start to get a sense, oh, this is actually what Australia looks and sounds like, which is incredibly diverse, uh, I- extremely inconsistent, and, um, and yeah, I think that that's like a winning strategy. I'm pleased you mentioned Zanita because what I have noticed, and I suppose both of you might have noticed this as well, is that in the wake of the election results and even actually in the you know final few weeks leading up to polling day, there has been enormous attention on the so-called teal independents, these, you know, women who have won seats previously held by, you know, blue ribbon liberal seats. And so these are people like Monique Ryan and Allegra Spender, Zoe Daniel and so forth. And, of course, what those uh, teal independents have achieved is fantastic and extraordinary and will have a huge impact on the coming parliament. But what I think has been interesting is that stories of people like uh, Zanita, who you mentioned over in WA, of Michelle Ananda Raja in Higgins, who you've written in your essay, of members like Dai Lee, like Sally and Reid. So all, all these people who weren't expected to win necessarily and could be described, I think, as like a huge, like a big electoral shock, right? The, you know, the fact that Labor won Higgins, that's huge. The fact that um, Dai Lee won Fowler, the fact that there were three Greens MPs in Queensland, like these are all, I think, really quite significant electoral results that aren't necessarily being given the same weight as the the teal wave, so-called. Why do you think that is and what do you think we're in store for with um, the folks I've just mentioned? Yeah, well, it was interesting. Like I made a pretty conscious strategy um, and I chatted to my editor about it and they'd already covered um, a lot of the metropolitan teals. So we've made the decision that uh, it was really about covering you know, some fresh voices and, you know, there's two parts of it. Obviously, because they belong to a major party or a a lot of the ones that you mentioned belong to a major party, there's like, um, there's less novelty. I also think that Labor, because they are a major party, were a lot more restrained in terms of media opportunities. I probably got, because my essay wasn't going to be published until after the election, I probably got more access than what I might have if I was going to write a standalone article about a candidate because... Political parties are risk-averse, Labor, Liberal. And so I actually think that, you know, as much as there's a risk, I I think that the more that they share how rich this tapestry of candidates are, like the the better for the Labor Party. Like I I think that the idea that 
a single political party, as I said before, or a leader can reflect all of Australia is, you know, just outdated and it's impossible. And and so you you almost need to look at um, these candidates almost like as part of like franchisees for the Labor Party. And so that you have a candidate like Dan Rapicoli in the Hunter who can speak to the Hunter, who, who can represent the workers in the Hunter. And he might be more pro-coal than, you know, uh, a candidate in inner city Melbourne. But that's because that's the area that he represents. And you need the people in that, that that area to feel like they're going to be at the table when we talk about a transition. And so he might be a little bit more pro-coal than, than I am or than, you know, another candidate might be, but that's um, that's sort of part of the democratic process. And I think that it's, I think that the only way that we bring, and, and Michelle and Andaraja made that point herself, like to get this transition that we, that we always talk about, you need to bring seats like Higgins along with seats like Hunter and I think that, you know, it's it's a lot harder in practice to actually execute that. Like, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes over the next few years. But I think that it's all about that balance. Now that you have those candidates in there, it's going to be really interesting to see their trajectories because, like, um, we used to always look at, you know, the 96 or 98, so those groups of the Labor MPs who ended up becoming the sort of, like, linchpins of the party over the next decade. Like, these new MPs, um, some of them could be, you know, down the track leadership material and they're going to present quite different styles of leadership to, to what we saw 15 or 20 years ago when you had these new influx of MPs. It's changing politics and changing rapidly and one of the elements of change was the success of the Greens in particularly in those inner city Brisbane seats and, and elsewhere around the country, the, the, the vote growing. And you've written about it in a, in a way that sort of dives into the changing dynamic here of how these Liberal seats in Queensland became Green seats and how traditional Liberal voters who uh, would never have thought of voting for the Greens 10 or 15 years ago did so and also reflected a, a almost the counterintuitive approach to the role of government and the role of work in people's lives and the way that uh, workers should be looked after and uh, what the expectation should be. I'd like to quote for you again so people get a sense of this. You talk about uh, one of the people in Queensland in Brisbane who he was uh, actually a rugby league player, a rugby union player, so I should never call him a leaguey, who, you know, uh, would, would usually vote Labor or One Nation, or but he says that he votes for the Greens this time because he wants to see real change in terms of his work, in terms of the uh, social safety net for him, and that um, the Greens are now coming for the low-vis base of culturally diverse service work, as you say, in the same way that the, that the One Nation came for the high-vis white men. So what's going on? What's the dynamic there that, that's changed and radically changed probably since the pandemic? It's hard to, like, generalise. I, I spoke to different people who were going to vote Greens, and what I wanted to try and capture was that it wasn't just rich white people who were voting for the Greens, I think that that's one of the stereotypes, or, or for the Teals, like that's one of the stereotypes that we've seen out of the election. And Labor still holds a lot of really multicultural working class seats. So I, I don't think that the Greens are going to start overnight winning in Western Sydney or anything. But there was a mixture of voters in those Brisbane seats. It wasn't just um, the rich people who, who were switching. There was, there's people who are who can't buy a house, who are worried about it. And the Greens are probably the only party really talking about that. After what happened at the last election, Labor got punished. And so they they really, and they probably needed to, to win government. They stripped away a lot of their ambitions about addressing um, even modest changes to negative gearing. So the Greens are one of the only parties talking about that. They also talked a lot about dental and mental. It cut through really quickly. Like if you say we're going to add dental to, to Medicare, like that's such an easy to digest policy and it improves people's lives. Uh, and so 
I think that, um, yeah, I think they can have a lot more success for that. And what they did this time around was that it's well documented the last election with um, Brown's convoy and whether that was right or wrong or not. But this felt like they've been building up to this for quite a while. Like they haven't, it didn't just happen in the last electoral cycle. They've been doing lots of work on the ground. And um, it felt like a very parochial version of the Greens. It didn't feel necessarily exactly the same as, uh, it didn't feel like a nationally sent down message. It felt like that there was people on the ground who were heavily invested in their local communities, who people could see doing stuff on the ground, especially during the floods, whether you're pro-green, anti-green, whatever. Like, I think that that's a really important message to all political parties that, um, yeah, you like the to go back to a grassroots approach and, and to really build from the ground up. And that's a really good thing for politics. And that's a really good thing for democracy if, if um, people of all political persuasions are, are sort of learning from that. So just to finish, Lek, the uh, mantra is if you change the government, you change the country. But has the, the country changed already and now the country is changing politics? And what I mean by that is politics playing catch-up with the real changes within Australia that have occurred, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's uh, the issue around climate change, which is rapidly changing the way that we uh, work and uh, what our expectations are for the future. Yeah, it's it's all changing, and like I, I think that the approach that we've seen um, just in the, a really short space of time is like a very different approach to government and to diplomacy, and and just it seems like we've got people who are taking it really seriously, and it, it's going to be really hard over the next few years. Like there, there's like a lot of economic turmoil ahead, and so you don't want to start like making grand predictions about political dynasties or whatever like it, it's very tough for labor to uh, win government it's it's very tough for them to hold government but i think that this approach is is going to do them well and i think that they have a lot of people who have experienced all of the trauma and the sort of like shitbaggery of the last uh labor government and i think that they they will hopefully avoid those mistakes and i think that the only way to re-engage with with the voters that we talk about who have lost faith in politics is to provide proof of improvements in their lives so that they can feel that their lives are improving and Labor aren't going to be in an economic position where they can probably pursue grand policy agendas but they can still do stuff that will improve people's lives and if they can do that and then maintain discipline as a as a government then that's their roadmap to the next election whatever else happens like that's they can control that stuff and that will give them an opportunity to cut through you know the media landscape that we always talk about and to to cut through propaganda and and so forth and to if people can feel that their lives are getting better and if people can feel like a sense of faith and pride in their leadership well that's how labor cuts through all that other stuff Lek, congratulations on a fabulous essay. It's in the latest edition of the monthly Lek Blaine's uh, essay. Just look for the monthly victory on the front cover with Lek Blaine. Thanks so much, Lek. I'm sure you will absolutely love it. Hey, I just want to ask you before we go, uh, what's the latest in the Murdoch campaign that you are in charge of, the Murdoch Royal Commission, and has the change of government uh, mean a change of dynamic for you? It has in a very exciting way. So um, folks with a keen eye for campaign strategy would have noticed that through the course of the election campaign, Australians from Murdoch Royal Commission focused on like media coverage and uh, the bias that was on 
public display by News Corp. Um, so we monitored the five biggest daily News Corp papers for political bias and we have a, you know, had a daily reporting project around that. And we also had a sort of decentralised, crowd-sourced media monitoring project looking at breaches of media code. So, you know, when News Corp publishes things that look like news articles, but they're actually opinion pieces or, you know, just basically publishes things that are not factual or are misleading. And we didn't spend the election campaign calling on Labor to go to the election with a Murdoch Royal Commission. Now that the Labor government uh, is getting ready to sit, we're feeling really positive about the future of this campaign. Certainly right now, Prime Minister Albanese is saying that he's not planning on holding a Royal Commission into media diversity. But as I recently told supporters of the campaign, if we all took no for an answer from politicians, like we would have never seen any of the recent reforms or any of the reforms in this country. You know, think about how many times the previous government ruled out a banking royal commission before it happened. I think that his attitude might change as well because um, I, I think that there was a sense that Murdoch might actually relent during the election campaign and, and sort of do what they did in 2007, which was like back a winner. But I, I think the election campaign showed that it's just too so far gone. Like there's not, it's it's pretty unrelenting. And, and so, yeah, I think that the fact that he was actual, actually still able to win it might have changed his attitude slightly and made him realise that he, he's probably not going to be able to win, you know, he's not going to win over News Corp. Yeah. Uh, look, I hope so. You know, I think many people have screamed at themselves or at the television or at the newspaper, like, how many more elections will Labor let News Corp campaign so openly against them and for the Liberal Party before they actually act on this beast. And I, I hope the answer is not another one. Like, I hope that this election has shown that even if the Labor Party's strategy is created with such a keen focus on avoiding attacks from News Corp, you know, it really felt like that was at the core of much of the Labor strategy. Even then, News Corp is still going to attack them. So, like, what have you got to lose? <laughs> but I'm, you know, really looking forward to what's going to come from this next parliament, particularly actually the Senate. The Senate's going to be a really exciting place to take forward, hopefully, um, the recommendations from the Senate inquiry into media diversity last year. So lots of work to do. So Sally, if people want to find out more about the campaign, where can they go online? You can follow us on Twitter if you like. It's at Murdoch underscore RC. There we are. There you are. Well, thank you once again for being on the pod. Thank you, Lek, as well. And we'll catch you on the next edition of On The Job. Bye. Bye. See you guys.